Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to Quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, I'm Anoush. I'm Will. I'm Rachel. I'm also Rachel. And welcome to the New Statesman podcast. This is an episode we like to call You Ask Us. In the studio, I'm joined by Rachel Wearmouth, our Deputy Political Editor, Will Dunn, our Business Editor, and Rachel Cunliffe, Senior Associate Editor, who have been reading through your questions this week. And remember, if you'd like to submit a question next time for us to answer, you can go to newstatesman.com forward slash you ask us or leave a comment on YouTube. Rachel Wearmouth, you're up first. What's your question? So this question is from Alan, who says, I'm a big fan of the podcast. Thank you, Alan. <laughs> and wanted to know what your reaction was to Keir Starmer's announcement about Labour keeping the Conservatives two child cap on benefits. Is this a knee-jerk reaction to what a subset in a focus group is saying? Or is the Liberal leadership now convinced of the moral need for draconian welfare policies? Well, this is a really interesting question um, because it is one of the bigger political stories this week. And for any of our listeners who might have missed it, Keir Starmer said that he would not be reversing the two-child limit to child benefits, which was one of the sort of totemic George Osborne austerity policies uh, announced in 2015, brought in in 2017, which uh, limits the amount that you can get to two children. And it's a big driver of child poverty. I think the latest official statistics, so these are official statistics, say one in 10 children live in households affected by the limit. Um, so that's 1.5 million children overall. And there's all sorts of different stats flying around, but um, reversing it would apparently, according to some of the charities involved in this space, take 250,000 children out of poverty overnight. Something that a lot of Labour politicians have been saying that they would reverse for a long time, including Keir Starmer, he said it in the past, um, and many uh, significant figures, including the Shadow Work and Pension Secretary, in the past have, have said how cruel the policy is. So it's quite a big emotional issue in the Labour Party, this one. Within the Labour Party, it def definitely is, yeah. I think it's worth saying there are some polls saying that, that the public does support keeping it and Labour's determined to listen to polls as much as possible as opposed to what its own party members think. I think there's a number of sort of internal politics going on here, one of which is that Labour's got its National Policy Forum meeting coming up this Saturday in which it'll kind of be the opening salvos between sort of factions of the Labour Party who want the next manifesto to take a certain shape or whatever. But I think some of the backlash here is kind of how Keir Starmer announced it, as in it was kind of just said very casually um, during an interview with Laura Koonsberg. And because, of, as you say, it's such an emotional issue for many people who have been unable to claim benefits, as well as people in the party membership who are just vehemently opposed to it. And then there's, there's, a, there's a broader kind of political dynamic in which 
Keir Starmer and Rachel Reeves are kind of like determined to be the most fiscally responsible people within the Labour Party and they want to communicate that dynamic as, as strongly as they possibly can. And then there's kind of another thing which Keir Starmer hinted, to, hinted about when he was interviewed by Tony Blair at um, the Tony Blair Institute conference this week. And it was about just achieving stability and how that would achieve growth. But also in particular, he mentioned how the economy must be stable in order, in order for businesses to partner with them on certain projects. One of those being the massive green industrial revolution that the party wants to achieve. They wants to make sure that the government looks like a reliable partner that businesses are willing to get into match fund projects with. So there's quite a few different things going on. Yeah, I think it's really interesting because the question that we've been asked is, is this to do with polling and sort of focus groups? And I would say sort of the bang average opinion is is unfortunately um, what you mentioned, which is, you know, people feel that families ought to live within their means. And I'm doing inverted commas there for listeners who can't see me. You know, I have heard that come up, you know, when I've been interviewing people, I've covered the welfare system in this country for a really long time. And it's, it is an opinion that's out there. But then they also ask, or is it um, sort of uh, Labour being convinced of, a, of the moral need for draconian welfare policies? I don't think they're quite in that space yet. But there's a third option that was being emphasised at the New Statesman summer drinks that we had earlier this week, where Rachel Reeves and Wes Streeting spoke. And they were saying, you know, it's the need for um, that fiscal bit discipline, wasn't it, for not making unfunded spending commitments. So I think this would cost about, I mean... <laughs> One charity is saying 1.3 billion. I think some people think it would be a bit more than that, um, yeah. and near, nearer 2 billion. And they just don't have, you know, anything where they could raise the money to spend on on reversing it. That's that's one of the arguments as well that wasn't mentioned by a questioner. But I think that's probably one of the most important because this is the key thing that they're trying to drive. And taxes are a real high at the moment. And um, I think the Labour Party is very aware of that. But I think you're seeing them shift more to the right at the moment. Um, during like Prime Minister's questions this week, for example, um, there's like a sort of subtle change in language from Keir Starmer, which um, went from sort of attacking Liz Truss's unfunded tax cuts to, um, you know, unfunded spending. You know, there's going to be, there's going to be so little between the, the government and the, the Labour Party at the next election, I think. This is really difficult, isn't it, for Labour frontbenchers as well? I mean, I was speaking to a Labour frontbench source who said that they'd even been warned to be quite careful how they criticise Tory cuts. And obviously, that's such a big part of Labour's message. You know, look at what you've done to the state and public services over the past 13 years. But even that language now, they have to moderate, which is interesting. And what you're saying, you're actually seeing it coming out in PMQs now. Rachel, what do you make of it? Rachel Cunliffe. I think... um, the, the, the fiscal responsibility, fiscal discipline point is the key one. I think Labour were really spooked by that front page of the I a couple of months ago where the I had costed a whole load of Labour policies and suggested in their research that a lot of them were unfunded and sort of Labour pushed back quite hard on that. But a key part of the message is all of the things that we want to do, we have thought about the finances. We're not getting out the big blank checkbook. Um, we're, we're not the party that you associate with kind of fecklessness and just splashing the cash left, right and centre. And so they are sort of now really trying to do the opposite, which is say, we're not going to suggest anything unless we've fully costed it. And the thing is, a lot of these policies you you can't fully cost if you're in opposition. You want to wait until you're in government and then you can have a proper look at the finances and you can look at it holistically and say, how much space do we have? What can we change? It, it's it, You don't have to sort of, as the opposition party, nail your colours to the mast in quite that detailed way. And that's why I think that this whole row is really more of a comms failure than anything else. Because yes, Laura Klinsberg was setting a trap for Keir Starmer 
as is going to happen a lot in the run-up to this election. You know, what about this policy? What do you think about it? But there's a way to answer that question that makes clear that Labour finds the current policy lacks compassion and is cruel and something they'd want to do something about, but without committing. So what you say is... Uh, we we think that this is a bad policy that has driven vulnerable families and children into poverty. We're not going to make any commitments until we can take a holistic view of, of the nation's finances because we are committed to being fiscally responsible, but it's definitely something that we'd like to look at. You know, an answer that says we don't agree with it, but good good luck getting that one past Laura Kay, Rachel. <laughs> she would have cut you off after the first two seconds. <laughs> I, I'm not saying it's easy, but I'm saying that you can um, present the message that it's something that you'd like to look at without just going on an offhand way. Now we're not we're not, not going to do anything about it, which makes it look really callous, I think. And I think that's what a lot of the backlash has been about. Not so much the policy itself, but the sort of offhand way he went, now we're not going to change it. Yeah, I think it sort of wounds the soul of the Labour Party yeah. in, in a way. I mean, um, there's been issues like this before. I think Rachel Reeves in the past, you know, before the current role that she was in, said that she wanted to be tougher than the Tories on welfare. And John Ashworth, the Shadow Work and Pension Secretary, he hasn't really said that much about universal credit, really. But one thing that he did come out and say was about how high fraud levels were. And so, you know, you see them kind of playing into this benefit scrounger, strivers versus skivers kind of mindset that we saw a lot of during the new Labour years and also under Cameron and Osborne as well. Yes, um, I would just sort of say in terms of the the comms there, I think sort of sort of the risk for Labour, I guess, in, in setting out a position like that. And I, I agree there's a level of callousness and they've been too casual about how they've communicated it. But the alternative to that is if the Labour Party says we're about to look at this, that may appear on the front page of the eye as, as a spending commitment in, in another kind of world. But He wanted to shut it down, didn't he? And he wanted to shut it down completely. And he, um, he shut it down in one way and, and opened it up, opened up a whole new front, yeah. Which made the New Statesman's summer drinks quite a fractious event, I thought. <laughs> but I, but a I also, lot of angry Labour people. Yeah, I also, I, I also don't think that the um, Labour Party is afraid of like some conflict clarifying their position, um, particularly with, with their own side and... I think it may be significant that they've chosen to do this the week before the National Policy Forum because they're, it's kind of a shot across the bows to those who want to call for the Lib Party to get out big spending. But I also think, um, and the Lib Party always does this, it always there's like a systemic failure to understand how the public sees benefits and welfare, particularly people who are working class, who, you know, at the last, at the last election got the benefits nirvana, arguably as, as an option and, and rejected it wholeheartedly, um, arguably because they don't, want their lives to feel that, like they don't have a point, like they can't get some purchase in the system and that their existence is not relevant to the government. The, the George Osborne justification for the policy was that you shouldn't receive more in benefits than, you know, a hardworking family that is paying for those benefits. And obviously there are all kinds of reasons why that's not a appropriate or fair or constructive way to look at it. But I think that is why it's actually quite a popular policy. Yeah, I mean, I, I suppose even if you believed all of that framing, it's still not the child's fault. It's still not the third no. or fourth child's fault. But Will, as we've got you here, I mean, yeah. how much are the public finances really this much of a bind for Labour that they can't even make commitments to put a dent in child poverty? Very much so. I think I think they, you know, when you talk about the cost of it being, you know, 1.3 billion or 2 billion, that doesn't sound like a whole lot. And you can say things like, oh, well, you just put, put that on private schools, that'll pay for that. But the government currently has the highest borrowing costs this century. So the last four billion quid's worth of 
government debt that was sold was sold at um, something up five point seven percent. So that you know that means overseas investors uh, are not paying as much for our government bonds gilts as uh, as as they have in uh, previous years. So, um, you know, that, that puts up the government borrowing costs. And every time you make an unfunded spending commitment, I mean, unfunded spending commitments is also a great thing to remind voters of, because obviously, you know, that reminds voters of Liz Truss. Yeah. Um, but also, you know, uh, I think to a certain extent, Labour has to appear callous, because uh, were they to say, right, we're, we're going to take a view on this, markets might well assume that that means they are going to remove the cap once in government and that will affect how much they can borrow once in government. So, you know, there's never been a, a, a time in recent history when governments have been more constrained by by the markets because guilt yields have been so high. They have gone down a little bit thanks to um, inflation uh, uh, lowering in the in the last inflation print. But yeah, it's still very, very high um, relative to recent history. So, yeah, they have to be incredibly careful. They have to keep saying we're not going to spend this. And they can't just say, yeah, they, they can't say, well, we might not spend this out. They have to say we're not going to right. in order to um, convince investors that there's there's not going to be um, a loads and loads of cheap debt coming onto the market. Can I ask a question then? Why doesn't that apply to the Conservatives going, oh, we, we, we might scrap inheritance tax? Well, I think it does. I mean, that might be part of. Or the conservatives—they don't seem the conservatives. Well, the government and the Telegraph does not seem sort of remotely worried that by saying we're going to scrap inheritance tax, which obviously will cost a lot more than removing the the two-child benefit cap, they might sort of spook the markets and make borrowing more expensive for the government. They don't—they don't seem fussed by that. Well, that might tell you about what they think their chances are of being the next government. <laughs> so after the break, Will, you're going to introduce the next question. Can you give us a little taster of what it's about? It's about nationalising the banks. If you're subscribed to The New Statesman, you can get all our episodes ad-free on The New Statesman app. You can get it on both iOS and Android. Just search for New Statesman on the App Store or Google Play Store. We'll be back after this. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Okay, so, Will, what question did you choose? So this is a question from a YouTube commenter with the interesting handle at Spartacus for Life 1508. <laughs> Hello, Spartacus. Uh, uh, Spartacus asks, if banks are again profiting from economic misery, then isn't it time the government created its own high street bank dealing in mortgages and small loans at competitive prices? The profits go straight to the exchequer. Isn't this logical? Thank you, Spartacus. All our listeners are Spartacus. Um, so, I mean, let's talk about the context for this question, first of all. So inflation has actually fallen by more than it was expected to. But still, you know, people's borrowing rates are, are going up. So why aren't banks passing this on to savers, for, for one thing? And would this potential solution that's being mooted by Spartacus help? Yeah, so the, the, the Monetary Policy Committee are currently deciding whether or not to, to put up interest rates again from... A uh, five percent bank rate to probably five and a quarter percent. 
And that's very different from the kind of instant access savings rate that you can get in one of the big high street banks, um, some of which will actually pay you less than 1% interest uh, on your savings. Um, there are some very good rates out there that are higher than bank rate, but um, they're often on accounts where you can only put in maybe three or 400 quid a month and you get that interest paid at the end of the year. And it's, you know, that's not particularly useful to, for example, a retiree with a, a pot of money that they're using for their retirement. They may be in the, the tens of thousands of pounds um, that they want to move uh, somewhere where they can get a, a decent return. So there is um, plenty of evidence that high street banks are making a good chunk of money out of the difference between um, what they are charging borrowers and what they're paying to their savers. So uh, NatWest's first quarter results, so that's the you know how much money they made in the first three months this year, their net interest income, which is that difference between what they charge borrowers, what they pay savers, that's gone up by £875 million on the same period the previous year. Mm -hmm. um, so it's 43% increase. So net interest income is like most of their total income. It's like 75%. So um, that's pushed their operating profit up by about 700 million quid. So there, yeah, there, there are very good reasons to ask why um, they're not handing more of that money to their their savers. So a very good question for Spartacus to be asking. Mm -hmm. um, but... There are a few things to say. You're going to defend the banks. What's going to defend the banks? <laughs> <laughs> Go I on, just well. love banks. Uh, so someone's got to make money in this time. <laughs> so first of all, you kind of do already bank with the government. So your money in your bank account is protected uh, up to eighty-five grand per person per institution by the financial services compensation scheme. If you have a pension, most of it is probably in gilts government bonds. So, you know, you're an investor in, in the government already. Congratulations. So you are already banking with the government to a to a certain extent through these means. For the government to then set up its own bank would be a really, really big investment. So um, it costs about 7.7, 7.8 billion a year to run NatWest. So, you know, they're making decent bit of profit but they it's, it's also a very significant expense and that would be you know to set up a NatWest would you know be a very very large amount of money um, and to get the Bank of England to do that um, would also be very tricky you'd have to hire thousands if not tens, tens of thousands of people it'd be a huge investment at a time when you know there's lots of borrowing to be done to pay for, for other stuff and so what would probably happen is it would probably be contracted out to somebody um, <laughs> and um, government contracting sometimes doesn't go that well. Sometimes, you know, it leads to uh, absolute disasters. Uh, sometimes it's just hugely expensive. So although it's, it's a nice idea, part of it, the important part, protecting the money you actually have is kind of already taken care of. And the other bit would be so expensive that it was basically impossible in the in the current economy. So is there any alternative where we could get a bit more help from the state with our transactions? There are people at the Bank of England who think that there is a way around this, um, which is to have a central bank digital currency. So you have a, 
a new kind of digital pound or a Bitcoin. That is um, a a new way of facilitating some like digital transactions, which gives people kind of a sort of a state provided money that they use because um, most of the money in our economy is um, created privately, it's mm. a private credit creation by high street banks. Um, so this would mean go back to more sort of uh, government uh, credit creation or, or central bank credit creation, and that would you know, mean that people were banking with a kind of account with the Bank of England. But um, it wouldn't necessarily be more competitive uh, in terms of the rates you would get on um, savings and uh, mortgages and things like that, because a lot of those are still funded by selling debt to international markets. So, you know, if, uh, yeah, if you're still selling bonds to fund it, then uh, it depends what other people will pay for those. Um, so it wouldn't necessarily get you a much cheaper mortgage or anything like that. And again, it would come with a load of problems. Like people aren't sure about what that would mean for your, your privacy. Yeah. It could come with a, a, a whole load of, of technical issues that would need, need ironing out. And again, you would probably get somebody else to do it. And that would probably be, you know, a high street bank. <laughs> so you'd be back to square <laughs> yeah. one. And the government bails out banks when they fail anyway. Yeah. Well. Yeah. Um, I mean, so it's sort of a bit of a moot. Yeah. The, the government is still the largest shareholder in that West. So if you want to bank with the government, <laughs> <laughs> you already are. Congratulations. So what, what could the potential solution be to this sort of rip off bank behavior then? Is it just tighter regulation? The FCA are imposing a new consumer duty. Could that help? Yes, uh, I think it will. Um, uh, yeah, it, it is a it's a regulatory question um, for the FCA and potentially the Competition and Markets Authority as well. And you know, it, in a lot of cases, sort of the, the other areas in which um, so-called greedflation or profit-led inflation has cropped up, where it's really identifiable, such as um, petrol prices, actually. The more people talk about it, so the more government acknowledges it and regulators um, say, we are going to look at this, that does tend to lead to a fairly quick turnaround in prices because you don't want to be ASDERC being called up in front of a select committee and having to explain why your margin on petrol has trebled um, because that, you know, gets people like me mentioning it on podcasts like this (laughs) and then people go, I might go to uh, another supermarket's petrol station. Um, And similarly, yeah, you you don't want to be the the bank that is singled out for the biggest net interest uh, income figure in front of the Treasury Select Committee that you know the headlines the um the, the threat of of uh, regulatory intervention is probably the most effective thing what about as has occasionally been suggested a windfall tax on banks in the same way that there was a windfall tax on energy companies this idea that if you're making supersonic profits because of the economic misery of of millions of people you know that's that's fine we're not going to stop you doing it but we are going to tax you for it is that is that possible? Is that likely? Or is that just a threat that gets sort of thrown about sometimes? If you if you don't get your interest rate sorted out, we'll do this. Yeah, again, I, it might be possible that the um, because obviously the, the the windfall tax on fuel is a case in which. So I, I'll go from defending banks to defending um, <laughs> fossil fuel companies because I love them as well. But in a way, like fossil fuel companies couldn't really help making those extra profits because they sell a globally traded commodity. So, the, you know, the price of that commodity went up. And so, 
you know, that, that like that's what caused them to make those um, excess profits. Um, but they also sell a globally traded commodity that kind of belongs to all of us because it comes out of the ground. Uh, and uh, so there, there is a very clear rationale for windfall tax on, on those. Um, this is more market-led and possibly a little bit harder to justify. But again, the, the threat of looking at it, the threat of possibly doing so might be enough to um, have people sort of move the numbers a bit, offer some more products, just tell consumers where they are in line for a, for a better deal if they just made a sort of a quick um, switch, which is very, very easy and possible to do now. So, yeah, it, it, it's it's something to to talk about, but it might not be something that necessarily had to materialise in, in order for, the, for some positive change to result. I was going to say that one of the biggest problems I would see with creating a bank would be it's like a cultural problem. Would 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 taxpayers really be keen for their taxes to go to the, ultimately the banking sector? You know, that's kind of that's a really really hard sell after two thousand eight. I think. Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah. And and on the flip side, I mean, this is what I always hear in focus groups and things. People think the government is is bad at spending money. It was, it's bad at borrowing money. We've yeah. got the highest proportion of um, inflation-linked debt in of, of all advanced economies. Yeah. So why do people think we'd be good at lending? I actually, <laughs> I actually think that the question and the way it's being asked is really interesting. So we've just explained, well, it's just explained perfectly why it, it wouldn't work. But I think the, the question, the fact that people are thinking about this and talking yeah. about it really speaks to the fact that Maybe since COVID, there's this sense that, like, why can't the government step in and mm. fix it? And if the banks aren't providing you with a decent mortgage rate or interest rates on your savings, why can't the government do something about it? And if the supermarkets aren't passing on the f- drop in wholesale costs to consumers, why doesn't the government step in? Why doesn't the government step in on on energy? And I think, you know, that's really justifiable when you look at all the different parts of the country that are that are falling apart but I think it is a change in mindset of something has gone wrong can the government please do something about it and I don't think you'd have got a question like that maybe five years ago yeah I mean and this is why I think the government is so keen to always say oh we're getting the supermarkets in we're getting the mortgage lenders in you know they, they want to look like they're doing something to try and influence the it's way the these government. markets are working even though they don't quite want to make that um, official sort of intervention like they were doing so often in the pandemic I think there's like some responsibility on consumers as well. Like people can vote with their feet. They can they can use their credit union more. You know, um, there are things that people can do that you know might stave off some of their fr- frustration in future. <laughs> yeah, that's right. I mean, there are there are sort of uh, community banks and credit unions and things like that that are um, for for Spartacus. You know, things to look at for a you know a more sort of Civic egalitarian minded. way of yeah. of banking. Yeah. Okay. Well, thanks to everyone who submitted questions. They're really good ones. Uh, We do read them all, so please keep them coming in. If you'd like to send us a question, just go to newstatesman.com forward slash you ask us. Or if you're watching on YouTube, you can just leave a comment under the video. If you like the New Statesman podcast, please vote for us in the listener's choice category in the British Podcast Awards. You can vote now at britishpodcastawards.com forward slash voting anytime until the 5th of September. Just type in the New Statesman podcast and it will come up. You've been listening to the New Statesman podcast with me, Anoush Shekelian, and my colleagues, Rachel Wearmouth, Will Dunn and Rachel Cunliffe. We'll be back tomorrow with our analysis of the by-election results. Follow us on your podcast app to make sure you get new episodes as soon as they're released. You can also watch video from this podcast on our YouTube channel. Just search YouTube for the New Statesman. We're produced by Suze Cooper and the executive producer is Chris Stone.
Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum.